الجزيرة بودكاست He was appointed prime minister in eastern Libya with a mandate to take over Tripoli but Fatih Bashaga hasn't delivered that has now been suspended What does this mean for the war-torn, deeply divided country? Is it a prelude to a new round of fighting? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan. This is the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests then for today's discussion from Istanbul. We're joined by Anas Elgamati, founder and director of the Sadek Institute, the first public think tank in Libya. From Tripoli, Mustafa Fatouri, journalist and political commentator on Libya. And in London is Jason Pack, president of Libya Analysis and author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Gentlemen, welcome uh, to you all. Anas, let's start with you. What's really behind the removal of Fatih Bashaga? He's not the first to fail to conquer Tripoli. Uh, who's pulling the strings here, the House of Representatives or someone or something else? Well, it's certainly been for a long time someone else, and it's, it's certainly a group now. It's not only just Khalifa Haftar, it's Khalifa Haftar's sons, who were behind that power move that brought Khalifa Haftar and Fatih Bashaga together under this parallel administration, the government of national stability. Um, it's brought very little stability, as we as we know, over the last 12 months. It had uh, two or at least three failed attempts to capture the capital. Um, you know, Fatih Bashaga's utility has kind of been lost. He was there as a union of, uh, quote-unquote, strongmen, strongmen of the East, Khalifa Haftar bringing the strongmen of the West, when that failed and the strongman of the West, uh, Fatih Bashaga, was unable to capture Tripoli, um, he kind of lost utility. It became a paper government. And now it's just a, f- a kind of a feeble tool of, of, of political pressure um, ahead of what could be likely negotiations with the government of national unity in Tripoli to also kind of endeavor on the very same experiment, a union between those in Tripoli and those in, in, in Tobruk today. Mustafa, uh, do you agree with what Anas w- w- was saying there? Yeah, most of it, except in the sense that it's 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 really very hard to separate Mr. Haftar from the parliament. Uh, the man enjoys quite uh, large support inside the uh, inside the parliament itself, and they are the parliamentarians who voted him as the head of the military years ago in 2014 or 15, I believe. And what I what I also see is the fact that there is some kind of uh, different approach from the Eastern forces, including the Parliament and Mr. Haftar, for the removal uh, signified by the removal of Mr. Bashar as a prime minister, and that could uh, be read or understood in one of three ways. One is very strong uh, message to Mr. Batili, the UN envoy to Libya, uh, by the Parliament, essentially telling him that we did our uh, did our bet for or any possible deal for United uh, military institutions, as well as uh, preparations for the uh, elections sometime this year. So it's the, the, the ball in the court of the people in Tripoli, i.e. Mr. Dbeib, and two, that Mr. Bashagha has overstayed uh, his term in terms of uh, usefulness to the forces in eastern Libya, especially Mr. Haftar. And there, possibly, and very important point is the fact that he became a liability after he attempted 
uh, twice to enter the capital uh, over the last 12 months, as uh, our colleague from Istanbul mentioned before. And he ended up unfairly actually chased by military force out of the capital, uh, leaving behind you know many deaths and uh, quite a, l a large uh, destruction and private properties of the people. But, so but he, Mustafa, he became a liability in a way. Yeah. Why would that be his fault, though? I'm sorry? Why would that be his fault, the fact that he, that he couldn't well, enter well, Tripoli? Well, basically, I would explain this very easily, because basically, those who support you might support you in general terms, that you are the prime minister, that you should take over power, but they are not necessarily uh, supporting the, the way you do it, you know, the steps you take. I'm not sure, and I'm, I'm quite sure, actually, that he consulted very much, very little uh, on, on the issue of entering the capital in the way he did, and uh, because because of that, many parliamentarians are against him. Essentially, they don't want violence anymore. Plus, the fact that he's perceived increasingly has been perceived as not very keen on national reconciliation, as we have seen over the last few months that the uh, military commission five plus five has met repeatedly in Benghazi and Tripoli, and both sides are talking in, ter in terms of military uh, uh, arrangements, at least. And it's perceived that Mishbashara represents some kind of hoax, you know, on the eastern side of the country. And that's not that's not something welcomed. Bless the fact we, we should not discount or discredit the allegations of uh, of corrupt uh, of corruption against him. I mean, the whole country is corrupt from top to okay. to, to, to bottom. That's true. But yep. there are certain serious allegations here. Jason, um, as Mustafa was saying, the whole, the whole country is corrupt. The fact that he's been removed from office and, and is now being investigated, uh, so it, it doesn't have everything to do with the, the, the fact that he failed to take control of Tripoli. Tripoli. He is one of uh, Libya's most influential politicians, a former interior minister. I mean, given that the, the whole country is corrupt, what could he have done wrong? Or is this a, a, a trumped-up charge against him, if, if you like, uh, a, a smokescreen? Well, I think it's important to zoom out and draw on some of the very good points that Anas and uh, Mustafa have made. So the reason there was a GNS, a General National Stability Government appointed in the East in early 2022, is the failure of the UN process to culminate in elections in 2021. And the reason that that failed is because all the status quo actors from Dubaiba to Haftar to the UAE and Turkey and Egypt didn't want there to be elections. The status quo actors are happy for things to continue as they are. They make their corruption. Libya is a failed or imploded state with all these different semi-sovereign institutions. And, and each of the regional powers have their own interests. Bashaga was chosen in the East because it was Bashaga who had defended Tripoli from Haftar's assault in 2020 and 2021 as the interior minister. And that made it seem like, oh, the East is not that biased. The East is bipartisan, blah, blah, blah. And this also took Bashaga away as a threat. After he failed to enter Tripoli in 2022 and early 2023, he's a busted flush. He's no longer useful. Rather than the victory in defending Tripoli that he had in his resume, it's the failure to re-enter Tripoli on behalf of the East. So Haftar and his sons and Aguila Saleh have discarded him. 
They've taken a potential rival to the status quo, and they've gotten rid of him. So now it's nearly impossible to have a unity government, and it will be impossible to move to elections. And therefore, what we've heard from our friends in Tripoli and Istanbul is all correct. This is all part of the parlor game, whereby the Libyan actors make it more complicated for the internationals to ever have an election. All right, and the regional powers conspire in the global enduring disorder to make sure that there can never be any progress. So, so where does that leave the UN and, and its, its envoy, uh, who recently came up with, with yet another initiative to try to hold elections? Well, it leaves them back at square zero, as they've been the whole time. He announced this steering committee in early January 2023, and he said the steering committee was going to be going around the HSC and the HOR. Then when Egypt pushed back, what do you know? He said, oh, actually, we're going to have the steering committee as advisory, and we're going to work through the HOR and HSC to make the electoral legislation. Right now, given what's happening in Sudan, Egypt and the Emirates are the dominant players. They support opposite sides in Sudan, but they work together in Libya to prevent progress. Nothing can go ahead, certainly while the Turkish election is ongoing, without Egypt and the Emirates wanting to secure it. So the Emiratis and the Egyptians are the mediators, and they don't want to see any progress. So we're completely stalled. And the UN and the West has taken their eye off the ball again. Uh, and as, uh, speaking of, let's get back to the corruption issue uh, for, for a moment. Um, who's most likely to replace uh, Bashaga in, in the long term? Uh, is that person any better placed to end the crisis in Libya? Or, uh, given what um, Jason was, was, was just saying there, uh, it, it doesn't really matter who is in charge uh, of the Eastern-based government? Well, I certainly believe in that. It doesn't matter who is in charge. Osama Hamad is an unknown to most Libyan people. He is a member of that parliament, I believe. Um, but the reality, and I think I have to touch on, on the two points that were made by, by Mustafa and uh, uh, by Jason, is that, number one, the idea that we have a parliament that enjoys credibility, that enjoys legitimacy. Let's just remember and remind our viewers, number one, that parliament was elected a decade ago and has suffocated the political process ever since, as, as, uh, as Jason was alluding to. Um, but also that that parliament was burnt down or, or set on fire uh, by parliament by protesters last summer in, in protests against the status quo. It has been the parliaments. I mean, I would say that the elements of corruption that uh, the two other speakers have pointed to, they're certainly true. I mean, the government in Tripoli is certainly corrupt. The seven uh, previous interim governments have certainly had that kind of corruption. But that's not blocking the elections. What blocks the elections are two factors. First, in elections law. And secondly, the constitutional basis of those elections. And they are central tenants of the UN roadmap. Those two central tenants are controlled by the two rival parliaments. The High State Council that was elected in 2012 is now a consultative body, and the parliament that we refer to in Eastern Libya. Those two parliaments have absolutely no ambition and no incentive to hold elections. Those two parliaments are the very reasons why we didn't have elections last year, because they kept agreeing to disagree over the constitutional basis and the electoral law in Libya. The very idea that they have any incentive, the very idea that they have been uh, are going to be the next custodians of Libya's uh, election roadmap when they have actually blocked successive attempts since 2015 to hold elections is a joke. And I think that act when we have to kind of really kind of toe down and really uh, drill down on the actors that are blocking elections, we should mention that it's those two parliaments. I should also end it on this. The idea that uh, Khalifa Haftar enjoys a relationship with that parliament, the last parliamentarian that enjoyed a relationship with Khalifa Haftar was Korsi Hamza and she was most likely assassinated by his forces when she asked for a peace deal or at least an end to the war that started in 2019. 
that is a continuation of what has been happening now. It is brute force that is uh, at the heart of the policies that are being conducted in eastern Libya that fairly, it rarely, if ever, reaches quorum and has more than 122 members. So by its own rules and regulations, it can't pass any legislation. It can't pass any uh, any uh, uh, any uh, actions over the government in Tripoli or even its own parallel government, the GNS. This is just now, like I said before, it's a feeble tool and an instrument of pressure that they're trying to use to force a government in Tripoli with the very same tactics they did with Fatih Bashara in 2022, the very same tactics they did with the parliament, sorry, the government that was established in 2015, the government of national accord. This is old wine in new bottles. And, and frankly, many of us that are analysing it, many that are sitting in Libya are just tired of the same old game. Is this, Anas, going to scale into, into full-blown violence again? Well, I mean, given the fact that when you look at the rule, those that are, are writing the rules of what has happened over the last uh, uh, seven or eight years, since, since the 2014 civil war, uh, individuals like Khalifa Haftar that has been investigated for war crimes was shaking hands with the prosecutor general of the ICC, uh, uh, Khan, uh, only for a few months ago. Um, he still enjoys uh, international relationships with the likes of the Millennium Administration in Italy, where he visited only a few weeks ago. He hosted William Burns, the chief of the CIA. So, I mean, all of these discrete relationships give you an idea of the kind of clout that that individual has. The very fact that he has gotten away with repeated power grabs in Tripoli, power grabs and coups that date back to 1969, if we consider that his career is over 54 years, you know, that involves a number of different actors that have, as Jason has alluded to, that give him diplomatic uh, support, like the likes of the UAE and France, uh, and the likes of Russia, the likes of Egypt. This is an individual that embodies and symbolizes the kind of crimes and the kind of erosion of the norms and international norms in Libya, whether it's, you know, putting human bodies in ovens, as we saw in the town of Tarhuna, 60, 70 kilometers away from Tripoli, whether it's importing in duplicate currencies, a fact that has never happened in history, where a sovereign currency, the Libyan currency, was duplicated by Russia, $10 billion worth, was duplicated and sent into the country to fund a war that killed other Libyans, or whether it's bringing in mercenaries from the likes of the UAE, Sudan, Russia, you name it, they were there. I mean, all of those facts give you an idea that the, the games, the rules of the game have been eroded a long time ago. So if yeah. anybody wants to commit violence, it's violence that comes without scrutiny and it comes without penalty. So I always think that we're on the verge of that. But because it's been repeated so many times, I think they're trying to give diplomacy a chance. Most likely they will try to go with another failed experiment as they did with this GNS and they'll come up with another acronym that won't work. But by the time that it's failed, there'll be more dead bodies most likely in Tripoli because that has been the objective of all of the political elite that are unelected, illegitimate, and have far expired their mandate a long, long time ago. Mustafa, just as, a, as an aside, uh, Bashaga had his headquarters in Sirte. Uh, uh, what of his future now? If these, if these uh, uh, allegations against him come, come to naught, um, uh, we've, we've then got power centres in Tripoli, Tobruk and, and, and Sirte. I mean, the country's partitioned three ways, isn't it? Well, you could say that. And uh, I would also add the point that Mr. Bashara, uh, you know, being that hawkish and uh, presenting himself as, you know, uh, capable of master, mastering some kind of force behind him, uh, namely militias that support him, you know, it's, it's uh, the, 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 this kind of tactic, if you like, or representation of the character itself has, has ended. You know, it's, it's, it's not time for that. Mr. Batiri, at least, 
supported by the international community, at least in terms of what they are saying publicly, uh, doesn't want to see some kind of hawkish, otherwise, you know, conflicts erupt here and there. But what has happened essentially uh, with Mr. Bashar, I think, uh, it was, you know, I would term it as, you know, political suicide for him in the first place actually to accept the uh, the idea of becoming prime minister in East Libya, plus the fact that he initiated the process of broaching Haftar instead of broaching the Eastern forces uh, in, in general. So that that was what what actually brought him in as a, as a political player and then nominated him as a selected you know uh, agreeable person if you like to be uh, the the head of the GNS in, in East Libya. Uh, Jason, uh, I want to ex explore um, uh, the issue that you touched upon earlier about uh, the external uh, influences that there are. Uh, in Libya, you mentioned Turkey and Egypt in particular. Uh, what happens if if President Erdogan isn't re-elected in the runoff? How do, how does that change things? Well, I was very hopeful that President Erdogan might, by some miracle, not be re-elected. Unfortunately, he nearly won fifty percent in the first round. He got forty-nine percent, and therefore he's almost certain, unless there's another earthquake or some new scandal to get over the 50% in the runoff. So it's not worth really debating too much because that ship has sailed. And this is because throughout the whole world, incumbency and being famous gives you power. And this is one of the tenets of the enduring disorder. It doesn't matter if you're Trump or Putin or Orban or Erdogan. And of course, populists can lose as Bolsonaro did. So I'm not just saying that all populists win, but if you're one of these populists, you're in the public eye and you say there are problems more problems, and you don't fix them, you just run again on only I can fix them. So Trump says, I'm gonna build a wall and stop Mexican migrants. He never builds the wall. He then, when he's out of power, complains there are more migrants, so okay. you need to elect I, him to fix the migrants, but he doesn't but, actually try to fix you, the migrants. Jason, are, you, are, you saying, are, you, are you saying here that, that, that Turkey is a malign influence in Libya? Of course, I mean, it's a malign influence throughout the whole region, but I'm explaining neo-populism as it bears on a question like Libya. The Turks and the Egyptians are the same in this. They say, look, we're really invested. We're really working to fix things. Okay. But actually, they're very happy for it just to continue because then it's a problem on which they can continue to uh, attract domestic support, need the Western players to work with them. What we see in Libya is the enduring disorder globally ripped out in a small microcosm, i.e. the regional powers, Turkey, Egypt, UAE, have a major influence. They're the dominant players. And the US, the UK, and the EU are small players. They're not able to order things in Libya. And the regional players are happy for the conflicts to continue so they can be needed to, quote unquote, help solve them, which they're not trying to solve. That's the enduring disorder. Anas, I saw you vigorously disagreeing there. The fact that the, the actions of the Turkish government, when they, which they took uh, in late uh, 2019, signing the Memorandum of Understanding and, and Maritime Agreements. That is a transactional deal between the Libyan government, or the, the former Libyan government, and the Turkish administration. It's also not a policy of the AK uh, party. It's not a policy of Erdogan. It's part of the Mavi homeland policy that was developed by uh, Turkey's own Ministry of Defense. It's a long-standing policy that was carved out independently of the political administration itself. But what I would say is that most Libyans themselves 
would most likely un not criticize the intervention that was taken by Turkey. Certainly not the government of national accord and certainly not the residents of Tripoli that were being absolutely assaulted from left, right and center by Russian mercenaries, by Emirati drones, by uh, sub-Saharan African mercenaries that were brought in by Hameti himself. So when it came down to the, the, the crunch uh, of what happened on April 4th, 2019, the government of national accord appealed to the UN that brought it into power. And they said, why don't you sanction this actor that is doing this? They failed to sanction him. They asked the European Union. They failed to sanction him. They asked for military support from a number of different countries. They failed to act. They asked Turkey to act. And Turkey was doing what the US, what the United Nations and what European actors should have done when okay. they had the leverage and the credibility to act at that time. Okay. Now, Turkey's intervention came in at a point where it defended the lives of 2 million right. residents of Tripoli. It hasn't advanced in the rest of the country. It hasn't taken an aggressive stance on uh, uh, on the forces in eastern Libya. And it led to a stalemate. Now, what I would agree with in, in terms of Jason's analysis is that they've entered into a status quo with the United Arab Emirates and with Russia, and they've carved out this stalemate that has really plagued the country moving forward. But I wouldn't say that Turkey's intervention was somehow drummed up by President Erdogan or that it was a malign influence. In fact, it was the only influence that brought the country to a ceasefire when the UN attempted to broker one several times and failed. Jason, do you want to, do you want very quickly to reply to that? Yeah, that's correct, of course. When Haftar attacked on April 4th, 2019, the GNA came to Washington. I met with them. They wanted to go to the UK and to Italy. And of course, they asked to be saved. They asked for arms. They asked for help. And they were abandoned by their Western allies. Neither Italy, the UK, or US came to save them. The Turks came in. They invented a new form of drone warfare, which was able to defeat the Russian and Emirati uh, anti-aircraft batteries. And they saved Tripoli. And the Libyan people will be forever grateful for that. And I'm grateful for that. I was commenting on the current situation, whereby there's a carve-out. There are now Turkish interests in the oil trading sphere. Maybe you've heard of Bayagan. And then the Russians are doing certain things, and Tafneft is developing a well. And the Emiratis work now both with Dubaiba and with people like Aguila Saleh. But they've kind of soured on Haftar. And the Egyptians are working with Haftar in Libya, although they oppose Haftar in his Sudan adventures. So the point is, the Turks had that great role to save Tripoli, but now they're just the status quo actor working with Libyan status quo actors to produce the global enduring disorder. And you need to okay. grasp that none of these regional powers have a vision for Libya. They don't have a vision for the region other than for it to be destabilized so that they can just stay in power. Mustafa, we've been talking about the two administrations in the East and the West, the, the external influences uh, upon them. There's another underlying issue here, though, the armed militias, all international efforts focusing on uh, reaching a political uh, a settlement. But, but you've got to disarm those militias, too, and integrate them somehow in, into society. I mean, is that ever going to be done? No. Oh. It will never be done, actually. I don't think, I don't really consider this to be a priority, uh, considered a priority by either side, you know, in the West or in the East, because uh, as well as uh, the same goes for the, the international actors who are meddling in the Libyan affairs, because you you can always use uh, such uh, tugs, you know, on the armed militias, uh, whether in the East and uh, South or in the Western part of the country. So uh, the idea, I mean, what we have seen, some kind of trend, you know, I've been seeing over the last few years after, you know, uh, during starting, you know, the, the last year of Mr. Sarraj's government is that most of those thugs, you know, armed militias are, are, are get, you know, gaining 
legitimacy, if you like, by being somehow uh, seemingly integrated into uh, serious uh, government uh, organizations, like we have seen in Tripoli here with Agnewa and the others. You know, the same goes for the uh, eastern part of Libya, the same thing. So uh, the idea of uh, there, there's also, uh, you know, a, a tricky thing here proposed by the United Nations at the time of uh, Stephanie Williams, you know, that the mercenaries, for example, who are the backbone of uh, supporting either side when there is a war, including the militias, of course, when there is a serious fight, they can only be, especially the African ones, they can only be sent back to their countries like Chad and Sudan, for example, when those countries uh, are stable enough to receive them. And this condition has been repeated recently by Mr. Batiri. That means they will never go back because okay. those countries, a very good example of which Sudan and Chad, will never actually be stable in the near future at least. So the effect of Libya will continue on. The idea of you know integrating those armed militias you know into serious government entities is very unlikely in the foreseeable future, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Gentlemen, there, I'm afraid we must uh, leave it. Anas El-Gamati, Mustafa Fatouri, and Jason Pack, thank you very much indeed uh, for being with us on Inside Story. This episode was produced by Mohamed El-Aichi, Katia Lopez-Horayan, Fungi Ungayan, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Yara Atala. The programme was edited by Leroy Messina, Lynn Ungayan, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Thursday for our next episode. This week on The Take. How decisive will the youth vote be in Greek elections? The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.